Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Locked On Cavaliers podcast. This is the episode for Monday, October 9th. I am Chris Manning, your host from FearTheSword.com and The Step Back. Uh, today, it's a very special show. Um, real quick, before we reveal who the guest is, I'm going to tease you guys just a bit, unless you've already seen in the episode description. Cavs did play on Sunday. No one played, but Jetty Osman looked good. Jeff Green looked good. No LeBron, no Wade, none of those other guys. LeBron should be back on Tuesday, so we'll get back to recapping games on Tuesday because they'll actually have some actual worthwhile things. We'll get into some more trends of the preseason on tomorrow's show as well. Um, but today's show is one of my favorite I've ever done. Um, I had the opportunity to interview Jason Lloyd. Now, if you're a Cavs fan out there or an NBA fan, really, at this point, you know who Jason Lloyd is. He is the Cavs beat reporter for The Athletic, formerly of the Atkin Beacon Journal. He... Ha- is famously known for his final thoughts article that he posts after every game that he covers. And you, you get some always get really intriguing nuggets about the team in that game, what's going on with the Cavs in that article, whether it's been at the ABJ or now at the Athletic. Jason also has a book coming out here soon called The Blueprint that is about LeBron James and how the Cavs re, sort of retooled and got back to trying to get him back into getting to where they are and it's a great book I had a chance to read it before uh, an advanced copy of it it's a great NBA book you will learn a lot about the Cavs you'll learn a lot about the NBA you'll learn a lot about Dan Gilbert you will learn a lot about LeBron you'll learn a lot about everyone involved David Griffin is a big character obviously there's one guy in the book that I I don't want to spoil it and Jason I talked around this a little bit but there's someone in the book that I think you'll think completely differently of after you read this book but it's a great book it comes out on October 24th uh, you can get it at Amazon Powell's your local bookstore um, and you can go order that now but you should go get it it's a great book highly recommend it um, but Jason on this podcast talked about that talked about covering the Cavs his process as a reporter a bunch of different things I hope you guys enjoy. And also, just go subscribe to The Athletic. It is great sports writing, get access to every city. They're killing it on their needs coverage right now. And just as a as a fan of journalism, a fan of Jason's work, a fan of what Zach Meisel and Gigi Zuppi and Zach Jackson are doing in the, in the Cleveland market itself, go support those guys. They're doing really, really great work. Um, and, and you won't really be disappointed in the content you get if you if you just pay some money for what they're doing there. It's a great. Seriously, it's great. And you get Jason's book as well um, when it comes out. But... Just want to let you know that today's podcast is also brought to you by the good folks over at SeatGeek. As you probably know by now, SeatGeek is the absolute best way for you to buy and sell tickets right on your phone. You can get tickets to concerts, Cavs games, Indians games, plays, whatever you want to get a ticket to, you can find that right on SeatGeek. You can download it on any smartphone, any that's an iPhone or an Android. They have a great website, SeatGeek.com, and you can find tickets instantly all it takes is you find the ticket you want it's graded on if it's a good deal or if it's a bad deal you get to see the view from the seat you see all the you see all the fees associated with that ticket so you know exactly what you're paying up front there's no hidden fees at, at the checkout and you're wondering oh why did i just spend 20 extra dollars on this ticket and it takes two taps and you're going to see something you want to see i just used see geek to get indians tickets last week for the playoffs some of you that follow me on twitter saw that i, I was there and i got that but i was because of see geek because i found a good deal on see geek at the last minute to go see the Indians play in the playoffs. But you you go down and seeking today, use that app, download the promo code L O M B A. It is L O M B A and you save twenty bucks on your first purchase. Just enter that in under the settings tab and you save twenty bucks on your first purchase with SeatGeek. But here is today's show. Jason Lloyd from The Athletic, the author of the upcoming book, The Blueprint. 
that is all about LeBron, the Cavs, and how the NBA works. And I think you guys will enjoy this interview and you'll enjoy the book as well. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. You are Locked On Cavaliers, your daily podcast on the Cleveland Cavaliers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So, Jason, first question I have is you came into this job right as LeBron left. How has your job changed, A, since he came back, and B, has moving to The Athletic from the Academic Journal changed your job at all as far as it relates to interacting with the players or just doing your job on a day-to-day basis? Starting with that one, no. Uh, I'm really doing the same thing I was doing at The Athletic that I was doing at The Academic Journal. I'm still traveling every day. Uh I'm sort of running things in the Cleveland site, so I don't really have a boss to report to, which is a little strange, but I worked with great people at Akron, and it's not like it was overbearing people anyway. In this field, in this world, you're kind of out on an island on your own anyway, regardless of where you're working. Uh, so that, that's that been no change at all. Um, and I, I totally forgot your first question. What was the first one? <laughs> uh, so you came into that. You mentioned this in the book, but you came – back into this you came into this job right oh. as LeBron left so how I mean what how did yeah. it change like when he comes back after you're covering some pretty bad teams for a couple of years well it's funny because I was on a flight and I think I put this in the book I was on a flight to Vegas for summer league when LeBron's I'm coming home letter dropped and a couple things I can't I don't think this is in the book but there was some Cavs personnel on the flight with me no, this and, this is in the book because I remember like you, I, there's a distinct scene where you talk about how like people were like freaking out behind you, and that's kind of how you found out. Well, yeah, yeah, that's how I found out. There were some people who worked for the Cavs that were on the plane who, as we were getting on, as we were boarding, didn't really have a good feeling that LeBron was coming back. Didn't really just were kind of pessimistic. Didn't really think uh, it was going to happen. And then, yeah, that this part is in the book where. Uh, we had direct TV on the plane, but I wasn't really watching. I was kind of right. transcribing some uh, audio I think I had, or I, was, I, I can't remember. I was reading a book. Uh, I was just doing a bunch of bunch of little things, but I was not watching TV. And the guy behind me started yelling, and he's going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I thought he was having a heart attack. And I turned around and looked, and then he screamed, he's coming back. And I, obviously I knew exactly what he was talking about. And everyone on the plane, like, there was this gasp. It was a direct flight Cleveland to Vegas, so it was all Cleveland people going to Vegas. And so I quickly turned on the TV and saw what was happening. And when the wheels hit the ground, my life changed instantly. And I didn't even check into the hotel. I drove right to the arena uh, for for summer league. I, I drove right to the Thomas and Mack Center in Vegas, and I walked into the media workroom. And Tim Reynolds is a good friend of mine, the Associated Press writer in Miami. And Tim saw me walk in, and Tim stood up and started applauding. <laughs> and he said, you can have him. He's all yours. I get my life back. And Tim and LeBron had a good relationship. They, had a, they, were, they were very close. Uh, but it, So it was by no means a dig of LeBron. It was just and – and I didn't really fully understand what he meant at the time. And I remember Mark Spears pulling me aside, uh, who was with Yahoo at the time, now at ESPN. And Mark said, record everything that happens from this day forward because your life is about to change. And I didn't really, you know, my head was still spinning from everything that had happened. But I remember those two conversations, and they were both right, because life did change almost instantly. Mark was right. And I understand what Tim means now. Now that we're entering our fourth season with LeBron, I know what Tim means when he says, I got my life back, because 
we've been going almost since the day he came back nonstop with mm-hmm. the on uh it has been like the off season this year felt like it was about ten days. Yeah. Exactly. So it has been a nonstop race since the day he came back from you know the 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 whole everything that went in the pomp and circumstance that came with his return to obviously winning the championship and then this summer with Griff leaving and Kyrie trade it's just been one thing after another after another after another uh, so those are the two things that I remember from that summer of him coming back is Tim Reynolds standing up and applauding and saying I get my life back and Mark Spears saying your life is going to change and they were both so so right. As a journalist, I'm sort of I'm curious about something that's maybe a little inside baseball. But how are you taking notes on this team? Like, are you someone who's a note using notebooks? Is it Word docs? And how are you just cataloging all of this information that you're taking a over the time he's not here and b when he comes back? I don't. I'm not a note taker at all. I don't. I don't carry. I hardly ever carry a notebook with me. And it's funny. That's how the job has changed from ten years ago. We all had notebooks. You know, mm-hmm. it's the you know, with the ink stained wretch. That's what we were referred to. Um, but I don't really, now it's all on tape, but the good stuff is never on, on tape. Like right. the good information that, that we get is never in formal settings. It's never the group interviews. Not very, very rarely does the good stuff ever come out of that. The good stuff is standing around hallways before and after games, text conversations, phone conversations. That's where the good stuff is. And, for me, I say this all the time. I can't remember if my wife says, stop and pick up a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk on your way home. I will forget in three and a half minutes. But I can remember every conversation I've had with every general manager, coach, and agent. I could tell you where I was standing. I could tell you exactly what was said. It's like it's it's freaky, like the way that I can recall those sort of things. Um, so when I was writing this book, it was all from memory, like 85% of what I wrote. Now I would have to stop and do a Google and, and find a specific stat or a specific date or get the exact quote, you know, something like that. But the stories were from memory. And there's a lot in there that I haven't written before and yeah. uh, that I sat on for one reason or another, either because I was asked, you know, off the record at this point that, you know, later I, c- I could write it later that happens a lot in this. And I know that aggravates a lot of fans. It's like, well, how come all the dirty laundry comes out after the fact? Well, if we wrote at the moment that we know it, it would destroy relationships and we would therefore not get any more information moving forward. And it's just, it's part of the deal. When you do this job, there are things that you have to sit on mm-hmm. and then you can write at a later date. It happens all the time. Um, and, and so some of that was included in this where there was just a lot of stuff from memory that I was able to recall. And, and that's why I told my wife, I said, you know, writing this book was sort of like, uh, I don't know if diary is the right word, but it was just sort of reliving my work life yeah. for the last however many years, the four years LeBron was gone and then him coming back. So no, I'm not a note taker at all. It's all in my head. And that's probably why I can't remember anything my wife says because it's all filled with conversations I have with people around the league. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just freaky that way. Yeah. I just having read, having read the book, like, and just knowing how much detail is in there, I just can't even imagine like how deep you're going into your mind to just kind of pull some of this stuff out. Cause it's, I mean, it's really, really detailed the whole, the whole thing and every aspect of the people when the people get to read it. Um, for, for you, when you were writing this book and I believe this is your first book, correct? First one. Yeah. 
how do you balancing the day-to-day reporting that you need to do for your for the places you were writing for the, the academic journal and the athletic and also making sure you're completing something that is just significantly longer and is going to have to just all fit together of course over 200 some pages that was the hardest part that that what you just said was the most difficult part of this book writing the book wasn't difficult uh finding the time to write the book was difficult and i just a quick a quick breakdown on how this all came to be so it was august after they won the championship uh it was probably late july early august i was on the east coast and uh my agent brought this to me contacted me and brought this to me and said you know she wasn't my agent at the time she emailed me and said i'm looking for I, I think there's a good story here, you know, in Cleveland winning a championship. Bridget Matsey, she's a Cleveland native, actually. She's from this area. She graduated from Magnificat High School, so she lives in D.C. now, but she's very tied into the Cleveland community, knows the backstory, knows the pain of Cleveland hurt. And and she said, I think there's a good story here. And I said, well, funny you should mention that because I'm the only writer who's covered this team every day, home and road, from the day LeBron left until the day he came back. Mm-hmm. So I've got the whole story that nobody else has. And she said, you know, let's do this. So in the book writing process, when you are an unknown writer in the book world, uh, you have to submit a proposal. So I had to submit a 15,000-word proposal. Um, and, and that's you know about a little under a quarter of the book. So that gives uh, prospective editors and publishers a pretty good idea of the direction of the book and which way the book's going to go. So... Uh, I spent most of August, again, this is August of 16. After I came back from the East Coast, we spent, I spent most of August getting the proposal ready. And we sent the proposal out in September, took offers on it in October, and accepted the offer from Penguin Random House in mid-October. So now we're just getting underway with last season beginning. And now I've got this book deal and I've got, I mean, I probably wrote about, 22,000 words, 23,000 words, and we pared it down to about 15,000 for the proposal. So I had about 23,000 words that I knew was going to be included in the book done before we even started. So that was about a third of the book before the season even started. Once the season started and traveling, you know, the city, finding the time to do it became extremely difficult. So there would be a month where I didn't even touch it. Mm-hmm. And then I would have two weeks where I just really hammered away on it and try to do as much as I could. Um, and then changing jobs on top of all of that, changing jobs in March and going to the athletic through another wrench into plans because there was a lot that went into getting that up off the ground, getting the athletic up off the ground and running. Uh, so again, the book kind of got pushed to the side for a time in you know January and February is I'm still working at the beacon, but I'm trying to uh, launch the athletic and maintain daily responsibilities with the Cavs. So it was, it was, it was hard. Last year was a, a hard year, and I skipped All Star Weekend last year to basically finish the book. So I probably crammed through. I probably wrote three chapters, three or four chapters, just over All Star Weekend. Uh, over the entire All Star break last year, I sent Marla Redmond or two from to All Star Weekend, and I just worked on the book the entire. And it, had it not been for that week, that week saved me. Had it not been for that week. <laughs> It still may not be done. Um, so I got a lot of it done over All-Star, finished it up um, in June as they were playing the Warriors in the finals. So the entire process took about a year 
but actual writing was much, much less than that. It was just finding the time to do it was very difficult to do. So that's why it took so long to complete. As we get into the actual book, there was this one line that you had in there that I think stuck with me more than the other ones. It's about David Griffin, and it was he thought all the losing from the last four years and the organization's failure to make a drastic step toward improvement had cost them that chance. And that's obviously in reference to LeBron. I think a lot of people, I don't know how you felt, but I think a lot of people sort of felt the same way, that it was a surprise that he did come back when he did. As you go through this book, it's about the blueprint, how the Cavs were trying to get him back in four years did, I mean, did they really succeed in everything they wanted to do in your mind of trying to actually lay that foundation, that blueprint down for LeBron to come back? I mean, yeah, they made mistakes along the way, sure. But they, ultimately, they pulled it off. And they pulled it off because LeBron wanted to come back. Right. Um, you know, now they had to have something attractive for him to come back to. And certainly, you know, I don't think that they had gotten it. Ideally, what they wanted was to be – a playoff team when he came back. They wanted to be a team that could, that was the eight seed, seven seed, something like that, during the 13-14 season, during his last year in Miami. Uh, and it just didn't work out that way. And there's a lot of reasons why that we get into in the book. Um, you know, they, they had this idea and this plan, we're going to protect cap space, we're going to preserve our cap space, and be in position to get LeBron. You know, if he wants to come back, we'll be in position to sign him. Well, then that last summer, before he could become a free agent, Dan sort of ran out of patience and said, you know, we're not we're not close. We need, we need to spend money. We need to go, go, go. And that went completely against everything that they had wanted to do the last three years. So they go out and sign all these bad contracts that they wound up having to dump the following summer to clear the cap space for them. Uh, and they wound up losing some valuable assets along the way. They had to trade a first-round pick just to clear the cap space to bring LeBron back. Uh, so there were certainly mistakes made along the way. And the Anthony Bennett story to me is one of the most fascinating things yeah. in the book Yes, was how that came to be um, and how he came to be the top pick in that draft. That is something uh, and I, obviously, yeah. that is something I don't want to, like, yeah, something I don't want to spoil because that to me was probably one that like, I didn't want, that's one of the things I, people need to read this and, and see it for themselves. Cause I was, I was sort of shocked and it kind of shaped, reshaped my opinion of like that summer in some ways, because of that, that was really new information that I don't really think has been out there as of, as of now. No, it's not. And, uh, and, and yeah, we, we can save it for people to read it themselves. Um, but I think that you will have a far different look at how some former people who used to work there, you'll have a far different view on them when you read it. Um, it was, and I had known that for a while, but the way that I was able to present it in the book and the quotes to back it up, um, because otherwise people just thought I was out of my mind. You know what I mean? People yeah. thought I was crazy. But to have the quotes from the book to back it up, uh, that to me is one of the most jaw-dropping parts of the book that I think a lot of people are going to go, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. Um, so it's just, it's just fascinating to me. Um, so, I mean, mistakes were made, you know, Chris Grant was fired. Byron Scott was fired. Mike Brown was fired. Uh, draft picks were blown. The AB pick obviously was a terrible pick. Mm -hmm. Dion never really fit playing next to Kyrie. Mm -hmm. um, so they made all these mistakes, yet they still managed to pull it off in the end. And it's, it's really, and it really was a plan. Like it really was. I started writing about the possibility of LeBron coming back probably in 2012. Yeah. Uh, because I just knew that that's where they were headed. I knew that that's what they wanted. Um, 
And it really took off once they saw the type of player Kyrie was going to be, the talent that he had. That first year after LeBron left, I've, I've referred to it as purgatory because it was just a death march. They had no rookies on the team. They had no hope. Um, they, they had Senator Den, Luke Karen Gody, um, Samardo Samuels. It was bad. That year was bad. And then to come out of that after that year, to win the lottery following that year, to get Kyrie and Tristan, two pieces that they knew they could build around. And then when they saw the type of player that Kyrie could be, when they saw how talented he really was, that's when they all kind of looked at each other and thought, okay, we've got something here. Like we've got something with this kid. Um, we're going to, we're going to keep losing. We don't want to win. We're going to stockpile high draft picks. We're going to leverage our cap space to try and acquire more draft picks. And we're going to try and tee this thing up and be in a position to where we can strike in the summer of 2014. And for all the mistakes that they made, they pulled it off. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, certainly they pulled it off. And I think the what you're again to think about the Anthony Bennett pick, this book I think will truly like reshape how you think of of that pick in a lot of ways. It's kind of crazy. Um, in your time covering the Cavs while LeBron was away and then three comes back, how do you think the organization changed if if they did it all? Um, how did the organization change? Well, it didn't change from the fact that Dan calls the shots. Um, so that hasn't changed. And, uh, people who are there now who were there previously will tell you how incredibly difficult it can be to work for him. So that hasn't changed. Um, you know, I guess, the, I mean, obviously the biggest change is you go from, and, you know, Griff kind of alluded to this when he took over, you go from, what did he say? Target acquisition mode. They were moving into target acquisition mode. Well, the only reason you could move into target acquisition mode is because of the four years of losing that were able to acquire all of those assets where you change from asset acquisition mode, I guess, to target acquisition mode. There was, there were, you know, they, their whole plan was not to spend money and to lose. Um, and then obviously as soon as LeBron comes back, you have to flip that entirely and you now become a team that has to win immediately. And that's really hard to do because, you know, I talked to Griff about this a couple times about the organic growth that you're, that, you know, you're supposed to naturally, you know, you go from an eight seed, seven seed, and then you work your way up to a, a fourth or a third and then up to a one. Uh, we've kind of seen that with Boston over the course of the last three or four years, how they have just sort of organically grown into a good team through the draft. That's not what the Cavs did. You know, they, they had all these draft picks and, and, these young players, but as soon as LeBron came back, they were gone. They traded them all for veterans, and they they sort of knew that going in. And I get into that in the book. They sort of knew that the guys that they were drafting were not necessarily going to be the guys who were going to be here long term. Mm-hmm. But they looked at them as object, objects and vehicles to get what they needed ultimately. Because LeBron, they knew. I mean, I had people saying LeBron doesn't like to play with a bunch of kids. He's not coming back here to play with a bunch of kids. So they knew that they were going to have to make deals when he came back. Uh, if he came back, and, and obviously they've, they've done that and they've turned over the roster, but just the difficulty involved with going from a horrible, awful team to a team expected to compete for a championship in one summer, it's really difficult to do. And, and you know, we've seen uh, how they've flipped this roster in just a couple of years, but they had the assets to do it. A lot of people don't realize David Griffin traded seven first-round picks in three years, yeah. seven. So he had a wide net to work with. And then won a championship. So that's not to knock what he did because it worked. Like, he did what he was supposed to do. I'm just saying, there was a a lot in the war chest. There was a lot of pieces in the war chest 
to get the pieces that they needed. Uh, and, and he took full advantage of it. But trading seven first-round picks in a three-year period, uh, that certainly is going to help you win. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's also a, a chapter, at least a large section of the book, that's focused on Jujunas Ogauskas' jersey retirement and getting LeBron to Cleveland from Chicago where he was playing with the Heat for, for it to come in for that night. It's a really interesting thing. It's been out there a little bit before, but in your mind, how essential was that night in actually getting LeBron back? I think he – I mean, that night is not the reason he came back. It's right, not no, like obviously. he showed obviously. up that night. Yeah, it's not like he said, oh, my God, I'm coming back. But I think it was, to me, from from my position, it was – the first real tangible sign that this could happen. Um, you know, cause I, I knew that the Cavs from the Cavs standpoint, that this is where the direction they wanted to go. I knew that's what they wanted. And then for LeBron to agree to come back for that night was the first sign to me that he would entertain this long-term. Um, and, you know, it's interesting talking to different people. The Cavs get very sensitive over these jersey retirement items. That's that's a sore subject with them in a lot of ways because they don't like the fact that it has turned into this narrative that they only retired his jersey and they only went through all this to try and get LeBron back. And they said that's, you know, that's disingenuous to Z and everything that he represented for us. And I talked to Z, as you know, I talked to Z yeah. about that night for the book. And Z said, you know, he was – he. I love the guy. He was a close friend of mine, and I wanted him there regardless of the decision that he made. And I believe that. I believe that they they, they handled Z um, the way that they did because of what he meant to the organization. I mean, Z and Chris Grant, Chris was the GM at the time uh, while he was fired right before, but Chris is the one who put the whole ceremony together, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, had, he had a big role in it. Let's put it that way. He had a big role in the ceremony. And to this day, Z and Chris are very close friends. They're, they're really good friends. They golf all the time together. So so I think they were going to do this regardless, but certainly the ability to show LeBron, hey, look, this could all be yours again. These fans, could, these fans will love you again just like they do him if you let them. And I, I think it did. LeBron has never admitted this. He's always downplaying that night as well. But I think that he, on some level, I think that night did impact him um, and did show him what could be his again. And again, I, was it the overriding factor? No. But I think it was just a sort of a glimpse into what could be. Yeah. When you were reporting this book, and there's a like seriously a ton of really interesting stories and moments that I think if you were familiar with them already, it'll like refresh your mind into them. Andrew Bynum, Mo Williams, they all make appearances. Was there a favorite story you found or a personality you maybe refreshed on or like reported more on while you're working on this book that, that has stuck out to you after you finished it? You know, the, the one scene, and it's not from the past, it's from, it's fairly recent, but the one scene that I guess sticks out to me from the book is the first scene I wrote because obviously I've never written a book before. Mm-hmm. So when I was talking to Bridget, when I was talking to my agent about how to go about doing this in terms of writing the proposal, and she said, it, you don't start at the beginning. Start the scene that you know, absolutely know, is going to be in the book that is pivotal to the book, and then work off of that. So that's what I did. And the first scene I wrote for the book was 
the Mo Williams Academy in Dallas, the night of the national championship game uh, in 2016 when, what was it, Alabama beat Clemson. Mm-hmm. And um, Tyree had just come back recently from knee surgery, and him and LeBron were out on the floor shooting. And we were there for probably an hour after practice. And Tyree's shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting, and LeBron's out there with him shot for shot. And they're having shooting contests. They're shooting from different spots on the floor. And it's just the two of them. And, you know, Mo has this academy in Dallas. He lives in Dallas. And he built this academy so that he has a place to train in the summer. He can get in there. He said, you know, with my with my family and my kids, sometimes it's, 10, 11 o'clock midnight before I'm free, before I have time to go get in the gym. So he built this gym in an old warehouse for him, and he uses it for kids, and he trains some kids too, uh, high school kids and AAU and all that. So, But it's just an old empty warehouse, and there's no showers. There's no, there's nothing for, for guys to go. There's some laundry facilities, but there's no, you know, after guys are done with practice, they just have to stand there with their gym bag in their hand or their uh, laundry bag in their hand and just wait. And... So Mo's given the tour to me and some of the other media people. Uh, Fox Sports did a, a bit on him, did a piece on him, and he's showing off the academy. And so Mo's talking for probably 30 minutes, 40 minutes about his academy. And Brian and, and Kyrie are still out there shooting and shooting. And they're showing no sign of slowing down. And it's an off day. You know, the national championship game's on that night. These guys have places they want to go. And they uh, – I remember Sasha Khan getting upset. Like, Sasha was getting aggravated that it was going on so long. And Verja was standing next to him, and Andy started laughing. And he looked at me, and he goes, he doesn't know he doesn't know yet what it's like with LeBron, that you just, <laughs> you wait. Yeah. And, and, and then about 15 minutes later, now Andy's getting aggravated, and Andy wants to go. So this went on for more than an hour. And finally, like, the players were going to leave him. And they're they're getting on the on the bus, and Ty Ty was just the assistant at the time. He wasn't even the head coach yet. This is when Blatt was still there. So Ty comes back in and lays into LeBron. He's like, "Come on, this is fucking rude. You gotta get out of here." <laughs> and um, LeBron was like, "Hey, man, all right, not in front of the media because it was me, uh, Varden, McMenamin." Um, so that scene sort of stuck out in my head. So the next night in Dallas. After the game, they, they beat the Mavericks the next night. And as LeBron was getting dressed to his locker, I was asking about the day before and about that scene. And LeBron's like, they can leave. They can leave us. Like, you know, we know the way back. We can get ourselves back. We're big boys. They don't have to wait for us. And he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember the exact quote, but he said, I will never leave him. And he knows that. Speaking of Kyrie, if he's out there, I'm out there. And he said, these guys need to see us working like this because – the ball is going to be in our hands when it really matters, and they need to have trust and faith in us. And that was January. Six months later in June, Kyrie's got the ball in his hands in the last minute of Game 7 to win the NBA Finals. So just the way that, that, that that's the scene, for whatever reason, that's the scene in that conversation I had with LeBron at his locker after the game in Dallas. Those two things stick out to me uh, when people ask me about the book and and scenes like that, that's the scene. I don't know why, but that's the scene I always go back to of LeBron staying with Kyrie on the court and saying the ball's going to be in our hands. And these guys need to see that they can trust us and have faith in us and have confidence in us. And then to have Kyrie hit the shots when the championship is pretty remarkable. I think it sticks out with me too, because I, I think maybe it's sort of because if you think about what changed this summer, it's just really interesting to think back to that. 
and they they did that sort of together in some way and then how this breakup is sort of happened but it's interesting and the sasha khan thing laughed out loud when i read that because of all the people that would be the first to complain sasha khan is just like a, a sasha rant, khan. Rant. yeah sasha right. khan right there, there's a reason why you're the 15th man on the <laughs> roster and why they are all-stars and future all-famers you know lebron for sure Kyrie possibly because because they're out there working an hour after practice while you're holding your gym bag annoyed that you just have to stand there and wait for them exactly was there anything that you had to cut after you made the the, the move down the word count that you wish had made it into the book in some way you know no one's asked me that yet um I don't think so because that's sort of the beauty of books is you have the time and the space necessary to get into the details that you normally wouldn't. Um, I'm not going to lie. There's still, there's still um, some nuggets that I have that I wish I could have written, but I didn't because, you know, I'm still after I've talked to people and say, can I put this in? And the answer was no. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll always respect that. And I'm not going to violate someone's trust in me like that. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a couple other nuggets that I think would fill in a gap or two that I was not able to share. And that's frustrating to me. Um, but beyond that, I think I got everything in there that I wanted to, uh, you know, it's funny when I first finished the book, I wasn't happy with it. I just, I just, but I'm, I'm always very critical. Like I always write things and think, Oh, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was done with the book, I thought, ah, I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know if there's any good or not. And, you know, the people at Penguin loved it and said it was great, but I told my wife, I'm like, well, they got to say that. Like, what are they going to tell me? It sucks. Um, but then as more and more people read it, you know, they all, people without a dog in the fight with no skin in the game were saying, wow, you know, I enjoyed that. That was great. I didn't know that. So that started to reassure me a little bit that, okay, maybe there is something here that people, um, that people are going to enjoy and, 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 and people are going to, you know, embrace. And then as I went back and read it again, it was funny as I was writing it, that's when I thought, nah, I don't know. But then when I got the, the, uh, the galley copy, when I got the first copy, the paperback sort of version, that's pr- the, the one that you got for promotional use. Mm-hmm. When I went through that and the whole thing was sort of knitted together when it was sewn together, I thought, okay, you know, now I can see it. And, and you know, I, it is something now today that I'm, I'm very proud of. And I'm so appreciative that I had the opportunity to write it. Uh, but just throughout the whole process, it's just funny how how your mind plays tricks on you and things that you think are good or aren't good and you don't really know until you put it all together. And then, you know, it's funny because you get all these uh, critique people like in the book world, they, they have these outside uh, businesses or, or library journals whose job it is to select books and to do critiques. And I, and it was, it was weird at first. And I told, I think my editor and my agent, I'm like, I'm used to, I'm the one usually doing the critiquing and now to be critiqued, now to have the roles reversed, is kind of funny, but uh, you know, warranted, you know, it's, it's only right. And I've always, I've always thought that if we're going to sit here and throw stones, then it's only right to stand there and take a stone or two. And, um, and, and to have people crit- critically review it, critically in the sense of, you know, obligated to say nice things about it. Um, but to have people review it, and it has gotten very good reviews. It was selected from the Library Journal as one of the top reads for full. Uh, so, you know, it was just, it was, it was a fantastic uh, experience start to finish. I was thrilled I got to do it. Uh, but I joked with my editor, Joe Schwartzman, the other day. 
it, when I first finished, I said, never again. I'm never writing another book. I was just mentally drained. It was exhausted from coming off the championship season, then rolling right into the book, and then rolling right into another season, and then finishing the book. I was done. By the end of June, I was done. And I said, I'll never write another one. And here already, I got the first hardbound uh, overnighted to me over the weekend. It came to my ride at my house over the weekend. I opened it up and looking through it. And I said, yeah, I can do this again. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm already starting to get that itch. Yeah. But not while LeBron is here, not while I'm the everyday beat man traveling, you know, 41 cities a year. I can't write another one now. But absolutely, I think I would look at writing another one in the future. Uh, Jason, last question I have for you is – as you look back at this book and you look back at Le- LeBron at the two free agencies that sort of had to the, find the Cavs in some ways, in a lot of ways, I mean, is there other lessons to be learned from those as you look at next summer? Is there any, the Cavs have like another blueprint now for that free agency or is it, is there, is this just something we're going to have to see how they react in the moment? Well, I think what they learned from it, uh, it's funny because after LeBron left the first time, you know, I had a lot of conversations with Dan, and Dan said he always felt like he should have traded LeBron mm-hmm. with the year left on his contract. And he said, if he's not going to commit, then, you know, and I told him, I said, that would be a public relations disaster. If you would have traded on the hometown hero with the year left on his contract, you would have been destroyed. And his point was, you know, I would have just said, hey, look, he wouldn't commit to us. We tried to sign him long term. He wouldn't commit. And we couldn't take the chance of, of losing him for nothing. So we had to trade him and get what we could for him. So that's always sort of resonated with me. And now the Cavs are in a position where here we are again. LeBron's going in the last year of his contract. He's not going to commit. But they couldn't trade him even if they wanted to because he's now got a no-trade clause. Mm-hmm. So he has now put – LeBron has managed to put the Cavs in the exact same position yet again that they were in last year, in 2010 – and he's taken away their power with a no trade clause. So that part's really, it's, it's just kind of fascinating to me how he's sort of done it to him again. Uh, not that I think that they would trade him, uh, but they don't even have the, the opportunity to trade him now. Yeah. But I do think that it was lessons learned because Dan, you know, from talking to people, obviously I've talked to a lot of people who have dealt with him and, and they, and they all say the same thing that Dan has never really been a plan B guy. He's always about plan A. Because whatever time you would devote to a plan B takes away the energy and focus that you could put into your original plan. So don't worry about a plan B. Just go for it. And I think we've seen that with his style from LeBron's first journey here. Um, and, and then obviously trying to win a championship and losing him. Um, and then even clearing the, like we talked about, clearing the trade with Boston to clear the cap space to have the room to bring him back with no assurance he was actually coming back. But, you know, the, the quote from Griff was, I, I knew we had to get to max space to have a shot at him. So we did it to get in the game, not knowing it, whether or not he was going to come back. And it was a huge risk. But again, that's, you know, plan B would have been, well, let's wait and see. Let's get a commitment from him first. And then we'll make the room available. That's not what they did. They, they got the room available. So if he wanted to come back, he could come back. And now this year, I think we're seeing, and I know a lot of people were upset with some of the things that I wrote this summer. Uh, but, you know, I absolutely believe that this is Dan, preparing a plan B the trade for Kyrie was his plan B and this Brooklyn pick from every indication I've got, the Cavs have no intention right now of trading this Brooklyn pick. Now, could they change their mind? Sure. You know, LeBron could come out in January and rip the organization like he did last year to us when we were in new Orleans. 
and put a lot of pressure on ownership to trade that pick. I just don't see it happening. I don't think without a commitment from LeBron, they are viewing this piece as a rebuilding piece that they will have in their pocket in the event he were to leave next summer. Because as we just said, they had nothing in 2010 after he left. They had traded all their picks away. They had nothing. As we sit here today, they have two first-round picks next summer, which would kickstart a rebuild. Now, you know, I think the odds of them trading their, their own pick at some point this year is probably pretty strong. But as we sit here today, they have two first-round picks. And they have the pieces to, to begin a rebuild in the event that he were to leave. It's sort of Dan's plan B. Um, and, and my other reason, you know, that I've said many times why I don't think they're going to trade the pick beyond their own intention right now of not wanting to trade it, who are they going to use it on? All of the stars that are going to get traded have already been traded, mm-hmm. from Jimmy Butler to Paul George, Kyrie Irving, um, Carmelo. Not that he was worth that pick, but they've all been traded already. So, and, and you can say to Marcus Cousins, and okay, fine. Personally, I do not believe that the Cavs would trade that pick for a couple of months at DeMarcus Cousins, knowing that he could walk at the end of the year as well, just like LeBron could, and, that, and then you're back to nothing. So I just I have a hard time finding, plus DeMarcus is sort of crazy. So I just, I, I just don't see a player out there worthy of using that pick on. So for a number of reasons, you know, I think that that's the lesson that they learned from the first time around from losing LeBron is they don't want to be caught – with nothing in the cupboards again, if he were to leave again this summer. Uh, so I think that they feel they feel good about the Jay Crowder piece and the contract that he's on, that they're going to control his rights for the next couple of years. They feel really good about the Brooklyn pick, um, and I, I just don't see that changing. Yeah, I think that feels about right. Them trading for Boogie is, I think, a fan theory that just seems crazy. But, uh, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. Everyone, the book is The Blueprint, LeBron James, Cleveland's Deliverance, and the Making of the Modern NBA. It comes out on October 24th. You can get it now. Order it at local bookstores. Order it on Amazon. Jason, thanks so much for, for talking about it. Thanks, Chris.